Well, it's that time of year when some people are hoping they might get engaged, others are hoping they can get through Christmas without splitting up, and maybe others are facing it alone, wondering if they'll ever get married. But this morning, we're going to ask if all this obsession with marriage is worth it. Is it just an outdated institution with ridiculous pressures and unachievable goals that ultimately makes most people miserable? Or is marriage still the most likely place to find happiness? Modern marriage is our talking point this morning. And in studio, Jim Sheehan is a psychotherapist and professor of family therapy at the VID Specialist University in Oslo. Barbara Scully is a broadcaster and writer with the Irish Independent. Richard Late is a sociologist at Trinity College Dublin. And Jane Gray is a sociologist at Maynooth University. And she's co-author of the book Family Rhythms. Richard Late, will you kick us off, please, and tell us where marriage is today? Well, marriage today is probably as popular as it's ever been, if not more, by and large. So often there is a concern that marriage is uh, something that people no longer want to be part of. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. So most people like marriage. Most people will enter into marriage. What we've seen, of course, is that people do it these days later. So we know that the age of marriage of bachelors now is something like 35. Women, it's about 33 on average. Um, That is now higher than it has been in a very long time. We we had our lowest age of marriage in the mid-1970s, about 1977, I think it was. It got down to about 26 for women. Uh, And that was when marriage was at one of its most popular points, when um, more people than ever were getting married. Uh, And that age itself, it had come down from a very high level of age at marriage back in the early 20th century. So in the early 20th centuries, you were looking at age of marriages that were kind of comparable to today, by and large. They were just a little bit lower. And you had a pattern where a lot of people in Ireland, the most throughout of all the European populations, people stayed single. This was a really interesting pattern where Ireland had something like a quarter of of men and women over 35, still unmarried. And what was driving that and what's driving it now? So at the time, and in the early 20th century, it was to do with economic development in Ireland. So the Irish population, the living average living standards were a lot lower. There were issues around being able to form new households. And of course, in a, in a, in a country where premarital sex was essentially uh, not very attractive in terms of the social consequences of it, and where people were monitored very closely in terms of premarital sex, like, you know, th- there were not that many empty rooms you could go and find. People were going to know. <laughs> Uh, the consequences of premarital sex were going to be very obvious. So people didn't do it by and large. And what that meant was that um, they, with inability to set up new households, people had to wait until they inherited property or when they had the circumstances to be able to marry. Now, as the, as the economy improved, and particularly as it, it sort of, we had that growth period of the 1970s, all of these things changed, you know, and the Irish people uh, increasingly married earlier and the age of marriage got younger and younger. And then uh, a different dynamic set in from the late 1970s onward, and that was the rise of cohabitation. So suddenly premarital sex, the, all of the, the social taboos around premarital sex began to melt away, as did the power of the, of the Catholic church and the belief in and Catholicism that supported it. And that meant that people increasingly lived together prior to getting married, pushing up that 
that average age of marriage. So the majority of people now will, will cohabit before they marry. So Jane Grey, what are the expectations now of marriage compared to, say, 40 or 50 years ago? How has that changed? Well, I think marriage has become much more the sort of end point of the process of family formation. So people will, as Richard just mentioned, live together. They may even have a child together. They will certainly try to establish themselves in their careers, to establish themselves in an independent home. And then if they get all of those things right, then perhaps they'll be more likely to to make the step to marriage. So marriage has become some sociologists argue, a kind of status symbol that, you know, that you can sort of show you've made it, uh, you've achieved these goals, these life goals in terms of forming families. And how do you think that changing nature of what we think a marriage is affects the success rate of the marriage? That's difficult to say. Um, One kind of argument might be that, yes, we expect so much more out of marriage now. We expect our relationships to be perfect. We expect our partner to give us a very strong sense of self-fulfillment. But uh, another argument might be that actually it's more economic circumstances that have changed the risk of marital separation and divorce. It might be more to do with the fact that People are no more, no less happy than they were in the past. It's just that they, that women in particular now have the capacity to make it on their own in a way that they didn't have So they have can afford the to leave. Yes, they might still be less well off, but they're more likely to be able to, to make it on their own perhaps. And how past. has marriage changed for women? I mean, it wasn't really that long ago maybe when arranged marriages, you know, were taking place in living memory or maybe it was about land or, you know, there was a lot more going on than love. Absolutely, that's right. And in fact, in our book, we have spoken to some people who do remember arranged marriages, though none of them admitted to having had an arranged marriage themselves. Uh, so, yes, certainly. But I think the some of the changes were perhaps quite early. I mean, Richard mentioned that by the 1970s, you know, marriage had become popular. People were marrying younger. People weren't as dependent on inheriting land. So I think that created the possibility of the idea of a more companionate type of relationship. So I think that the bigger change probably occurred around then than it has occurred more recently in terms of what we expect from so, marriage. So, Jim Sheehan, what do you see as the, the big changes in marriage? I think probably the biggest changes that I see over the last, say, 25 years are that the, the members of the couple are becoming busier. For example, marriage is saturated with choice in a way, and it's also saturated with activity. People are expecting that they lead much more activity-filled lives. So while there's a lot of choice, there's different things that people Mm. can do, there's also a huge amount of expectation that that people do different things. So people have choice, but on the other hand, they have to do certain things to keep the dream alive. Like for example to keep well like for example to pay that mortgage, you have to keep the job at a certain level where you get pay at a certain level to see that all that infrastructure is kept. Fathers, for example, Fathers in kind of contemporary marriage have the desires and inbuilt goals now to be real psychological parents to their children and not just the guys who bring home the bacon. So that actually puts enormous pressure on them. Mm. Uh, And, you know, from a clinical point of view, most of the couples that I would see, one of the, the most immediate things that strike you about marriages in difficulty are that people are tired, exhausted, over busy and have no time for each other. 
or the time that they get to spend together, which wasn't the fantasy they had about getting married and getting into that house where they felt comfortable and safe. You know, they actually spend all their time outside of the house to be able to uh, have a home, you know. And then when they're in there, they haven't got the time to be there with each other. So yeah. they have more they have more contacts outside the home. They have more relaxed hours of communication at work sometimes. So they're much more likely to find some kind of satisfactions than in other places other than the place where they thought they were building it. You know? And is that bad for the marriage? You know, it might serve the individual well, maybe that they've lots going on in their lives and they're seeing their yeah, friends and, yeah. you know, maybe enjoying their career. Yeah. But... How does the marriage stand up to that? Well, you see, the problem is that somebody uh, somewhere along the line when this busyness goes on says, you know, what's happened to us? You know, where has this thing called romance and love and feeling gone? Because here we're both exhausted. We spend about 10 minutes every day, if we're lucky, talking to each other. It's usually about the children and what the other person hasn't done to pick them up and why they were left at the football pitch instead of being collected (laughs) on time and so on. So those are the kind of things that are the the nuts and bolts of of everyday life. And then, you know, what drives people into thinking, God, you know, maybe we should separate is this niggling idea that marriage should be about love and romance, which is a very troubling idea. You know, very troubling. Why is it troubling? really put people off that idea. You know, I'm getting increasingly less in favour of love. Why? What? That's a terrible thing to say. Come on, I think it's very distracting for people, you see. I think it's very distracting that it's the place that people start out. But people very often are not happy and they have this expectation that, that that sense of romance and feelings, internal, strong, loving feeling, I really love this person, that they find that gone. You know, and then they think, well, you know, well, you know, I got to separate. I got to go, you know, and then you look at the finances of it and you say, oh, my God, you know, we can't afford to do this. And maybe I shouldn't talk about my feelings. <laughs> Keep going to the tennis club. Keep going to the yoga. Keep going to all the other activities, you know, keep busy above all and try not to think too much about <laughs> the dreams that you've built and where they've got to now. You can sack me now, Sarah, for all my cynicism. I go home straight away. <laughs> I think you've just described Bravo. almost every relationship I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Barbara. It's not like that all the time, obviously. Well, just I don't a lot know. of the time. <laughs> <laughs> An aunt of mine was saying recently, Barbara, all the young people are tired. Why are they all tired? Mm. I think Jim has just described it. Is that what's wrong with us? I think that's a huge part of it. And I've often thought that I think the kind of um, model we've set up for, for living um, of, you know, having to have both partners in a relationship in full-time employment in order to be able to afford to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and all the rest of it is, I think it's unsustainable. Um, I know when we were doing it, and I've talked about this before, I was working, he was working, and when child number three came along uh, and various other things happened that made us stand back and go, whoa, this is just crazy. Now, we were lucky this was before the wheels fell off and the Celtic Tiger was just starting to roar and my husband's self-employed so he could, as he said, dance faster when he wasn't having to do exactly what you said about having to pick up the kids and me saying, hang on, I'm going to be late, you need to do this and yada yada. Yeah. So once he was free to do all that, he could work harder and I know I was privileged to be able to stand back for those years and be at home. But I do think that the thing... 
about marriage that still is terribly important to most people. And this is not from a moral point of view. It's purely from a practical point of view is if you want to have children and I've done it the other way. I have did the first one on my own. Well, obviously not completely on my own, but, but for all intents and purposes on my own. And being a lone parent is really, really tough. Um, and I could go on in another programme and talk about yeah. how we, we really I don't know don't, how people do it. We I don't. don't and the way we treat lone parents still in this country is absolutely appalling. But that's another programme. But it's very, very hard. So, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's purely practical is to, you know, that marriage will facilitate another partner who's going to be invested completely in this family and in looking after the children. And I was thinking, you know, as I was coming in, I was thinking, but why get married then? Why did I get married? Why did I not just, you know, kind of catch your man and say, right, we're going to have kids. And, you know, because your lives become so entwined with mortgages and bank accounts and everything that it it gets complicated enough. But I, I, I thought it was like losing weight. You know, if I say to myself, do you know what? I'm going to lose three stone, but I don't tell anybody. Then it doesn't really matter if I get a bit fed up a few weeks in and think, you know what? I'm not going to bother. So I think it's the whole thing of being public and saying, I'm going to marry this person. Um, you know, and you make your vows, whether they're in a religious environment or whether they're in, 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 mm. in not in a religious environment, it's irrelevant. It's the whole doing it in front of people and saying, you know, this is the person with whom I'm hoping to spend um, hopefully the rest of my life and I think that forms a kind of glue uh, that's helpful on those days that you've just described when you know you think but, but what happened I'm to wondering us? though why did we come up with this idea that it had to be for the rest of your life well that's interesting and again I've wondered obviously just in relation to myself and I think that marriage in particularly suits people who are inherently lazy um, and I think that um, myself and I think unless he's off doing things that I don't know about my husband are inherently lazy and I think we both you know at times I've often thought what would happen if he really 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 I mean he annoys me every day and I annoy him every day but if it really got too much do you know I don't have the energy to actually walk away <laughs> and do anything about it so I'm kind of gone way beyond the thinking that Nirvana exists out there somewhere. Well, Richard, if I put it to you like this, what purpose does marriage serve to society as a whole? I think it's not probably good to think of it in terms of the the usefulness it serves to society, right? You've got to think of it in terms of the usefulness it serves to the people who enter into it. And marriage is now, as I've said, not now not the, the gatekeeper to a sexual relationship. People can have sexual relationships without having marriage. And they'll, they'll have that elongated period when they'll be living together or, or they'll be, you know, having relationships of, of various kinds. And then they'll, usually the tipping point, though, is children. So children come along and then people want to do the public pronouncement, as you, as you said. People want to show in public that they're committed to this person and to this relationship and that this is a, a long-term future. But, of course... At that point, okay, now now they see, in a sense, they want official sanction for for their union. They want it to be recognised now and they want everyone to know about it. And But in doing that, they also then pile on many of those expectations that Jim was putting forward, you know, that come with this, that if you've waited so long and if you've got all these other components of your life in place, then surely the person you commit to now must be that person that you're really in love with and is your perfect partner and all of these other expectations drive a, a sort of a pressure onto onto that relationship that can be quite damaging into the future and there's there's certainly been a change over time in what marriage means to people what what these relationships mean in the past 
Ireland was never, probably didn't have the same level of arranged marriages as we might see in other societies. But marriage was a much more, in a sense, you know, practical, logistic kind of arrangement in the past than it is now. It was seen as providing, you know, a, a practical thing that, that men and women did because that was the way that society ran. There were, there were traditions and there were moral norms that you obeyed. There weren't that many choices about how it worked. Over time, and this is not just in Ireland, this is much further afield in the US, in Britain, in other countries as well, with, that, with the 20th century came a wholly different way of seeing this, the, the, both the viability and acceptance of different ways of living. And with that comes sort of the release from the sort of constraints that you might have had before from those social norms, but also the worries that come with it. Because you've then got to worry about what do you replace it with? Okay, what, if, if I haven't got this norm, if we don't have sort of expectations about what we're meant to do that we all agree on, then, then you've got to replace it with something else. And that's when you get the difficulties of people's expectations will vary. And not only will they vary maybe now, but they're going to, you get together now on a similar expectation, but circumstances change, your, your expectations change, and then you can find yourselves drifting apart and finding this as being cataclysmic. Because now, of course, if, if this person isn't your, your dream, if this person is no longer the person that meets all of your criterion, suddenly, as Jim said, we have serious doubts. and We want to walk away. Jane Grey, you know, marriage was often something, obviously, that women never willingly entered into. It was something kind of done to them. And we know about stuff like there was no concept of marital rape and domestic violence was seen as a private matter and things like that. And even today, I think it's shown that women are more prone to depression when they're in marriage, whereas marriage, I think, makes men a bit happier. Jim might have something on that. Why are women still getting married if it's really not that good for them and never really was? Well, I think <laughs> I think it probably was good for women. Um, women couldn't have an adult status. They couldn't have independence in, in traditional Ireland without marriage. And uh, I think perhaps just following on from, from what we were talking about before, we might... Uh, hasten too quickly to say that marriage is no longer the kind of an important public institution. Uh, as uh, Richard was talking, I was thinking about um, the referendum for same-sex marriage. Yeah. And, and at the time, you might have said, and I sometimes ask the students, is this not a bit puzzling that we've just had the introduction of civil partnership, uh, people no longer, you know, you no, you no longer have the kind of negative condemnation of living out together outside marriages in the past. And yet this was seen very much as a, as a human right, something that should be available uh, to same-sex couples as well. And to me, that signalled that marriage is still a very important public uh, commitment and probably, and I think as important for, for women as for men, I think if you're asking about why you have uh, patterns of, you know, women maybe being more unhappy within marriage, well, I think it has to do with the division of labour and it has to do with the things that Barbara was talking about earlier, that uh, women may feel uh, torn uh, uh, with these kind of conflicting uh, moral obligations on the one hand, uh, you know, to, to, to be the carer and the nurturer, but simultaneously maybe just an equally strong expectation to, to be a provider in contemporary society. And having said that as well, I think that 
our research suggests that men are equally frustrated and not being able to be participants in their children's lives. And interestingly, that's something that's been true right through the generations of people that we interviewed, that older men in much more traditional Ireland will now, in interviews with us, reflect on the fact that they felt that they missed out on their opportunity to spend time yeah, with their children. My, my dad would say, or my mother would say, oh, he never changed a nappy. And my dad would say, I was never let. So, <laughs> you know, they, they look back in it differently. But Jim, I'm just intrigued in a way by the idea of how the idea of marriage as this romantic partnership for life evolved and they would live in the house and rear the children when there are alternatives, surely. Sometimes my female friends and I joke that we should all just move in together, you know, (laughs) and just rear the kids together and have a pad in town or something and let the men come and go and life would just be easier all around. This idea of the romantic lifelong pair, do you think, is that something that has any inherent uh, motivation or is it something that's just socially conditioned because it makes society work in a more ordered way? Well, I think it it has makes society work in a more ordered way and it has had a very long life. Uh, the question is whether it is an inbuilt universal in our human species and I'm not so sure that it is. You know, I, I, I do think that there's already signs in different places that people are making different kind of choices. You know, we were talking about the popularity of marriage. It certainly is. And the psychiatrist Tony Clare really used to enjoy saying, you know, marriage is as popular as it ever was because people do it again and again yeah. and again and what again. What is it? It's the you triumph know? of optimism over reality, <laughs> over reality or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but uh, so, I mean, that kind of model of sort of serial monogamy uh, as a a form of of marriage has been kind of slowly growing and steadily with us. But, you know, there are signs, I think, that people may be taking some different kinds of decisions. I was talking to some of my colleagues who who work in the West Coast of the United States, which Mm. is not always the place that we should look to. I know in Ireland we don't like talking about the West Coast of the United States, but sometimes the wind starts to blow things from there in this direction, you know. Mm. So uh, one of the things that seems to be happening there in some parts is that some younger people, when they separate, they get married, go through the whole step, living together, maybe have a child or not, but then separate, divorce, right? And the pattern before was that they would do it all again. We'd go and get married all again, do it all again. Now people are stopping and are not so sure about making that second marriage. Oh, and and there's a lot of evidence that in some areas people are taking a preference for living alone. So that has been very worrying for some health commentators because it's leading to different kinds of lifestyle. Because, you see, people don't need to live together. There was this strange idea that you needed to live with somebody to have a sexual relationship and to have your sexual needs met. It was thought like a good bet that if you get somebody under the same roof generally for a week at a time you'd a fair chance of having your sexual needs met you know on the law of <laughs> yeah, averages right, you'd, fall, you'd, you'd kind of fall into it like sex happens or something <laughs> like that do you know but nowadays the bit that we haven't talked about now of course is the net the the, the internet um, and people are able to kind of take care of their different sexual needs through uh, arrangements set up on the net meetings set up through that or just through the net itself through a not leaving your living room or your bedroom, you know. Uh, so it, it may be that there's a group of, of 
people who are not so quick to move into that second marriage, you know. The, the other thing I would say just is, is that the, one of the things, of course, that we haven't had a, a good public debate on yet, and maybe we're not ready for it, is that ingredient of marriage that's fixed towards the pair, you know, mm. the twosome. You know, uh, I, I, I wrote a paper about nine years ago now about the, the question of looking at the, what I call the number of intimacy in adult relational life. You know, what is the number of intimacy? And we actually have been been very much wedded to the idea of two, that intimacy and certainly the meeting of sexual needs should be within the context of a two-person relationship. And yet so many people that I see are, are having affairs, having multiple relationships outside of marriage. So there's this understructure of relationship going on in society that has very little to do with the formal presentation of marriage as a two-person lifelong event. Richard, you want it in there? This notion of a fundamental structuring to human relationships, which uh, um, is quite important here, because we do tend to have this sense that there are these are just about choices. These are just about people having beliefs about the world and therefore they, they will go with their beliefs and with their choices. But actually there is, there is a sort of a fundamental physiological, hormonal and neurological process that goes on with um, three different processes. And one of those, of course, is attraction, you know, sexual attraction. Jim's spoken about that. Um, most people at some point will have a strong sense of attraction to other people. Uh, not everybody, it should be said, some people are asexual and different and individuals will, of course, go up and down in terms of their, their need for, uh, to use the wrong metaphor there, or uh, the, their need for sexual relationships. So there's going to be attraction. But there's also then attachment. And there's a really fundamental human process here of attachment where individuals become focused onto another individual to the exclusion of others. You know, it's that process whereby people start, um, they want the physical objects that the other person has touched and they put great store by this. Mm. Or this person is just, they are so different from everybody else that I've ever met. And they're, they're very, you know, they have these traits which I've never seen in anybody. They're so close to me. We're so well matched. And this that process of attachment comes from a basic biological process that human beings have had evolved into them, which is to stabilise relationships so that for at least the length of time that it takes to have the lust and you know the attraction to take its form for them to conceive and then to rear a child, at least in, from its early stages of life, that, that focusing down on the individual. The last bit then is the bit that, that ends up being much more complex and often one where it all goes wrong, which is bonding, that long-term bonding that individuals would have. And that can be a function, not only it's less so of a physiological process and more a kind of like a, a set of circumstances which are conducive, if you like, to those two individuals being compatible for a longer period after that. But there, there is a sort of, there's a machinery at the individual level mm. which drives that, that, you know, the attraction you might have and then the attachment you're going to drive and then to a lesser extent the bonding that you're going to achieve. Barbara, that idea of the, the pair... Mm. And the idea that you must fulfill all your needs within the pair, best friend, financial provider, sexual, uh, good parent, all of that, like that expectation being so high. And you see a lot of relationships maybe breaking up over extramarital sex or something mm. like that. Mm. Maybe if we didn't expect so much from the marriage, people would be more tolerant of occasional lapses. Well, I always remember my mother telling me um, for years, like long before I was getting married, 
that having a one night stand wasn't the worst thing she could ever imagine having to um, deal with in her marriage, which kind of freaked me out slightly when I was a teenager. Um, You know, the thought of either my mother or my father going off to have a one night stand was a bit spooky. But, um, you know, I think there's there's possibly something in that. But the other thing which I think is interesting about talking about, you know, this whole idea of the couple and of of just a two person um, exclusive relationship, which, and as I said, I'm inherently lazy, so that kind of suits me. (laughs) But... Um, I was I had to review a book a while ago which deeply uh, unnerved me um, by a guy called Daniel Bergner. Um, the book was called What uh, Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. And coming from a feminist point of view, he was putting forward one of the theories was that um, that the idea that, that women are the more monogamous, uh, you know, of mm. the species. In other words, men are out sown all their wild oats where women tend to want this monogamy um, is another idea, I suppose, that's been sold to us by the patriarchy, that, that biologically, perhaps, we are more... Uh, we are less monogamous, in fact, than men are. And there was an experiment that was done, again, probably in, in California, uh, to back this up, where a group of men and women were, were of all sexual orientations and none probably were taken into rooms, shown various videos. And the men only tended to get aroused by uh, what they saw in relation to their own um, um, uh, sexual persuasion, right? So straight men were turned on by straight sex, gay men by gay sex, etc. Women were turned on by it all. Ooh, all right. of it. Um, so therefore... Perhaps women are much more sexually adventurous than we have been led to believe we are, that we are conditioned from the time we're so young to think that we all want, you know, the picket fence and the house and the children and, you know, settled and and, and um, no excitement whatsoever. And that deeply unnerved me because all I could think of was Gay Burns' question that he asked at the end of his programme. What if that's true? Yeah. What if you get to the end of your days and you realise that God, in her wisdom, said, I laid out this huge feast for you and you just took one dish. What were you thinking? You know, that's a bit, uh, that's a bit so, scary. So do you think there is potential for us to recondition the idea of a marriage so that you could go out there and have some of that feast and you see, come home and it doesn't have to wreck everything? Yeah, no, I mean, there, there is definitely an attraction in that idea, certainly. And I hate the idea in anything in life to feel that I've missed out on something I should have experienced and that I've I've, I've missed out on it by being stupid. Um, but at the same time, then I have also got like, there's, there's the whole uh, hygiene issue to me and that right does my head in. So <laughs> I kind of balance it out that way. Um, so that coupled with the laziness, I reckon I'm kind of um So Jane, Jane Grey, so marriage as it is constituted, do we have to accept that whilst we might have to make from time to time sacrifices in terms of our personal freedom? So no, you can't go off to India because there are kids at home and no, you can't go off with your man down the road because that might break up the marriage and that would be terrible. But that the overall um, result, both over a lifetime for the couple and for society a whole, as a whole, is better served by this concept of the romantic pair? That's a very big question. Um, I'm good at the big questions. I I think that, uh, and I'm I'm good at the sort of academic response, which is that that depends. It depends on the context. Um, You know, different societies historically we know have had very different kinds of expectations for relationships in many societies. you know, the, the, the pair relationship between sort of man and woman wasn't the most important emotional relationship in people's lives. We in the Western world have lived through an extended 
historical period when it was the most important relationship in people's lives. So, I, but I suppose hypothetically, it's possible that that might change. What are you seeing with uh, younger people? And, you know, you've got Tinder and, you know, all this stuff going on. Do you see younger people making different choices or is, as Richard says, they go through all that and they still want to get married at the end of it? I think the, the latter, yes. I think they do go through all that and that's definitely something that's different. Uh, but I do think there's no sign yet that marriage is not a, a desirable goal for most people. Richard Lee, we were chatting before and you were telling me there's some interesting trends about the economic uh, position of women relative to men in modern marriage. Yeah, this is this is a really fascinating change because um, in the past, what we tended to find was we educated girls less and we, of course, constrained women in the labour market so that whenever they got married, they often had to leave. Um, so the marriage bar existed in Ireland until 1973. Mm. Uh, and this meant that women, generally speaking, you know, had less education and lower occupational positions and, of course, less income than men. But over time, we've educated our, our girls more and our young women more. And we have now allowed women to stay in the labour market. And we encourage that. And in fact, it's a part of the central plank of government policy to encourage women to work in the labour market. And what this means now, if you look at the results from the from the census or recent census rounds, and uh, some of my colleagues, Pete Lunn and Tony Fahey, have done this. When you look at this, there's a generalised process called homogamy, okay, which means that people who have like levels of education or like levels of occupation, they simply will get together. So the biggest group of couples are going to be those who have the same levels of education and around about the same level of occupation. But increasingly, where they don't match, the bigger group is that the woman has a higher education than the man and the woman has a higher occupational position than the man. Now, this is a real change. What this means now suddenly is that all of those traditional patterns that I spoke about earlier on that we might have sort of had rules of thumb about how you would go about things, these begin to be difficult they begin to bring conflict and they even might get thrown out the window. And what you might end up is that people have to start thinking about, well, maybe the woman will be the primary earner in the household. Maybe we should prioritise her job. Maybe she should be the one who, who goes out to work, whereas the man stays at home when the children come along. Suddenly there are all new choices coming up. Suddenly employers have to think about the women that they want to stay in their in their firms and not be banking on having ranks of people that are going to be there all the way through. Maybe they have to provide flexible work situations for those women. Governments have to think about the way that women will vote. Women are going to be interested in the kind of policies that contribute to their ability to stay in the labour market and get the returns that they need. All kinds of new things crop up. A really important one, of course, has been domestic labour. How you divide up domestic mm -hmm. work. If the man and the woman are both out working full time, if they have very strong beliefs about the traditional nature of work and that women are just better at caring, then maybe she'll continue to do it. But that's unlikely. And Jim Sheehan, you know, I've seen couples and at the start they think that that stuff doesn't matter because mm. they're a young modern couple and it doesn't mm. matter who earns more than whom. And of course they'll split up the, the housework. And then it's 10 years later and despite all their modern beliefs... Very hard to shift those stereotypes and their idea of what it is they should be doing or their spouse should be doing. How does yeah. that affect Very much marriage? so. You know, I would say in the last 10 years, I've seen quite a number of marriages where there's been a breakup because of really dissatisfaction in the, the woman who is the higher income earner and maybe the man, because of changes in the marketplace, his job has not gone so well and his position economically has gone down and down. 
And it often seemed to me that in that group of couples, there was the economic thing within the woman. The woman said, kind of assessed her position, you know, about her investment in this marriage. She wasn't getting enough return from it, you know, because I think that people do approach marriage with an investment mentality, even though we don't like to say so. You know, love is one register with which we approach it. Do I love the other person? The other register is investment. Am I getting enough out of it for my investment? What's my return? You know, so a lot of marriages break down because one person feels that the return they're getting on what they're putting in uh, is is actually not a good return and that they re- if they reinvest themselves and their income possibly in a different type of relationship, the return will be better, you know. so Presumably you don't advise that as being a healthy approach to a relationship, the investment approach. Well, as you know... Sarah, as yes, you know, Jim. therapists are very slow to advise people about anything, but it is the way that we operate. I'm not suggesting that that's often the only thing, that the only register on which people uh, assess the relationship, but it is one. And I think we'd be very, very remiss and we'd be missing something big if we didn't see that. What know? is the best way to approach a marriage? You know, that what idea should you With have? With extreme in caution. <laughs> With extreme caution. Take it slowly. Walk slowly every step of the way. Keep watching around you. All kinds of things can happen, you know, with, 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 with caution. Obviously, you can't, you can't live that way. And, of course, I'm going to say something for a moment uh, about lifelong marriage. I'm oh, going to yes. say something in praise of lifelong marriage. Okay. One of the wonderful things about lifelong marriage, if you think you have it, right, if you think you have it, is that it allows you to to invest a lot of energy into other creative things in your life, do you know? Like, it's very uncreative for people to try to be get ahead with their work work projects and in the back of their head is they're thinking, God, are we going to stay together? Are we going to split up? What am I going to have to do if, we, if he leaves or if she leaves? That's all very soul-destroying and energy-sapping, yeah. do you know? But... I wanted to say just one other thing, Sarah, yeah. very quickly about that we're talking about about the pair. One of the things we haven't talked about yet is the the change in our length, the length of life, the longevity that we have, and how that changes the picture about marriage. For example, you know, marriage was often thought about. You know, we get married until death do us part. Now, if we get married in our mid twenties or even thirty, and we we'd safely die and exit at about seventy five, right? That's kind of like about. 50 years, 45, 50 years, right? If we actually live now, as some scientists are suggesting, that the first people who are going to live till they're 150 may have already Mm. been born, right? Let's look at that for a second. Then we're talking about the possibility of a marriage length, which is far, far greater. You know, it's potentially, potentially like from the, the ages of 30 to 140. That's 110 years. That might oh, be. God. Hold on a second. Don't, None of don't. us know what that feels like. No. no. <laughs> Do you know? And the other side about that is that, you know, when you think about that, the empty nest syndrome, the empty nest years kind of went from the time the youngest child left when, you know, you might have been 55 or something like that. And if he or she popped their clogs at 75. There was only 20 years of an empty nest and with a bit of luck he'd have a few grandchildren to smooth the thing over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, But if in fact now children are becoming psychologically more independent, younger. So in a sense they're psychologically leaving the nest much, much younger. And the parents 
are, are living much, much longer, do you know? That creates a vast time to, to be together and to find a way to be creative. We have to think about as a society, we have to think about that. So, Barbara, you spend that first, say, 20 years running around trying to rear these kids. Then they go... And then you're left looking at each mm. other. Yeah, that what kind of happens worries me. then? I don't know. Um, and that, that is something. But I do think that, that you know, I mean, she's made a load of really interesting points there. But I, one of the things that I think about marriage, having been done it now for 20 years, is that it's like anything else. It's constantly changing and evolving. It's not a static uh, kind of a thing. So as you say, you've got the years when you've got the young kids and you're all flying around and it's, and it's kind of crazy and it's kind of hectic. We're now touch wood in a reasonably nice place where our kids are old teenagers and, and early 20s. So we great crack with them, you know, and they actually have come back to kind of thinking we're fairly OK again. <laughs> so, you know, there's that group kind of a dynamic going on where, you know, and it's and it's it's very expensive, but you're kind of hanging out with, with a load of adults rather than with kids. And that's lovely. But I do worry because I do look down the line and think, you know, 10 or 15 years time, they're going to, please God, be moved on with their own lives and moved out and then there's just me and him looking at each other again with nothing to distract us in the middle and that does worry me but I do think it's something that uh, and I think the, the point you made about your creative side you know as your financial commitments should hopefully please God go down that you might have that space to dial back a little bit on the work and dial up a little bit on the creativity which I hope would save your sanity and I suppose Jane that piece about children ultimately is that the purpose of marriage, that the, the, the children are reared in relative stability and then it means we've someone to mind us when we're old. Is that the return on our investment, perhaps, as Jim might put it? And that never goes away, irrespective of society's ideas about whether it's a domestic contract or a romantic pair. Well, yes, but I think there's trouble ahead there Uh-oh. as well, <laughs> because um, remember, and we're, we're, we're starting to have children, many of us much later, so that we're actually looking after children in their teens. And children, of course, are taking longer. They may be psychologically independent, but perhaps they're spending longer to actually become economically independent. So, so that what that means is that as we age, uh, our ageing children may not be in as good a position to look after us in our old age as perhaps would have been true uh, for those who were marrying and starting families in, yeah, in the 1970s. Yeah, I'm telling my children they have to up their game on their careers. They're only, like the eldest is 13 because they're going to have to pay for my nursing home. Um, look, Jim, it is coming into a stressful week and we have to wrap now. Is there a bit of advice you'd give for couples as they approach Christmas and maybe are wondering how they're going to get through it? Uh, absolutely. Sincerely meant Try not to spend too much time together. together. <laughs> spend, spend little periods of time focused on activity. Uh, generate that sense of togetherness in short spaces of time, but try not to spend too much time. And I'm saying that out of experience because over the years, can I tell you, therapists will tell you there's a huge rise in referrals to couples therapists after summer holidays. And after Christmas holidays, right. when we've had a chance to spend the time together that we've so fondly dreamt of while we were so busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for today. Bobby Kerr is up next with Winning Back the High Street in Greystones. Many thanks to my guests. You can listen back to the show on Newstalk.com or on our fancy new app available on iTunes or Google Play so you can listen offline. And it is a stressful week ahead, so be kind to yourself and to everyone else. Thank you for listening. Happy Christmas.